Again, we're reading from Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are all being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, again, what an amazing truth. Many of us here can identify with what we just read. We are a people who were far off who have been brought near. We were strangers and aliens to the promises of God, and yet now we are brought in as one, one with you, one with each other, all because of the work and the person of Jesus Christ, our cornerstone in faith. Lord, we look forward to the continued exposition of your word this morning. Be with Pastor Mike as he uh, delivers what you have prepared in his heart in the days before today as leading up to this moment. And again, Lord, we all have an obligation to respond in some form or fashion to what we just read at a minimum great gratitude and thanksgiving for what you've done. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again, brothers and sisters. Joy to be with you this morning. Keep your place there in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to continue on in this great chapter where we began last week. We'll find our place around verse 13, 14 in just a minute. But let me just say again, I want to invite you uh, to jump into the book of Ephesians with us, especially if you're new to Tri-Cities. We're thrilled that you're here. 
Uh, but invite you to jump in, get the most out of this great book of Ephesians. There's reading plans, you can jump in, you can read through the book of Ephesians with us, you can study through the book of Ephesians, great tools. Talk about what God is teaching you through Ephesians around your kitchen table, maybe in a go group. If you're not in a grow group, jump in one uh, or start a go group. Uh, just a place to continue to grow and spur one another on toward Christ's likeness as they walk through this great book of Ephesians. Chapter 2, around verse 13 or 14, going to be there in just a minute. Uh, let me again try to set the context of what we are about to walk through and dive into this morning. Full disclosure, full honesty, I said this to Pastor David as I was standing next to him this morning. I consider it an honor, privilege, overwhelming responsibility anytime I get to stand before you and break up with God's Word. There are times when you come to texts of Scripture and you feel woefully inadequate to communicate what's here. I got that feeling this morning. In the chapter 2 of Ephesians is absolutely transformational for us as God's people if we will grow in our understanding of what is declared to be true here. It's incredible truth. So to set all of that up a little bit this morning, I, I want to just share an undeniable reality this morning and it's this that we live in a deeply divided world full of conflict hostility and divisions you don't have to say amen but you could just say something like oh me because we know it's true families experience conflict and hostility and divisions Maybe your family experienced conflict and hostility on the way to church this morning in the minivan. I don't know what it was like. We know families experience hostility and conflict and divisions. Heartbreaking reality is that in the United States, over 40% of first-time marriages end in divorce. Families experience conflict. We know that in our own country over the last five years, it would be undeniable to say that we as a country have experienced racial divisions in a way that have only resurfaced these deep fractures in our country. Tragically, racial hostility and divisions. Can't watch the news right now with seeing the wars and the threats of war all around the world today. Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, North Korea, South Korea, China, Taiwan, just, Taiwan, just keep on naming. We live in a world of conflict and hostility and divisions, and we know that to be true. Throughout history, man has attempted all kinds of theories and all kinds of ways to replace hostility with peace. Let me give you an illustration. 1945, an organization known as the United Nations was formed following the just devastation of two world wars. The United Nations was formed with a noble goal. In fact, I'll read it to you. The goal of the United Nations was to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, to maintain international peace and security. Peace the goal of the United Nations. Since the formation of the United Nations in 1945, there have been no less than 
480 wars and military conflicts between nations on earth. Now listen, that's not a political statement. It's a theological reality. And the theological reality that I want us to understand as we go into chapter 2 this morning is this. Scripture makes clear that the enemy of peace, the cause of all conflict and hostility, and ultimately is found in the deeply embedded sinfulness of the human heart. Yours and mine. Please, no finger pointing this morning, right? We're all born into this world sinful and selfish. And as long as there is selfishness, what results is conflict and division and strife. Sin makes us selfish. Jeremiah 17, 9, you know this verse, the heart, the heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can even understand it? Scripture says. James 4, 1 says, what is the cause of quarrels and fights among you? Ever wondered that? Man, we just seem to fight all the time. We just can't seem to get along. The book of James says, the cause is, don't you know, they come from your own evil desires at war within you. Conflict within always spills out to conflict without. Jesus said, for from the heart come evil thoughts and murders, adulteries, immoralities, theft, false witness, slander from the human heart. The Bible alone is able to rightly diagnose the condition of the human heart and also answer the question, why is the world in the state the world is in? The human heart. But fortunately, the Bible doesn't stop with just a diagnosis. Scripture gives the only solution to the brokenness of the human heart. And God's people should say, Amen. Paul, book of Ephesians, declares to this community of transformed believers in the city of Ephesus during the Roman Empire and the first century AD he declares to them and we've been studying through this great chapter he says in chapter one we want you to know the grace of God that has been given to you we have been called out of darkness out of sin according to his purpose in Christ Jesus in Christ we have been chosen in Christ we have been adopted in Christ we have been redeemed in Christ we have been reconciled to God and the hostility that existed in our own human heart by faith yielding to Christ that hostility between man and God has been nailed to the cross you now have peace with God through Jesus Christ hallelujah chapter 1 of Ephesians, you come to chapter 2 of Ephesians, and Paul, we were there last week, and Pastor Paul's been walking us through it the last few weeks, but remember, we talked about last week, there's this flow of chapter 2, and it's, what you remember, what you were, you were dead in sin and trespass. Remember what Christ has done, he has made us alive together with him, he has raised us up with him, he has seated us in the heavenlies with him what Christ has done and now what we have in Christ Jesus we were dead in sin we've been raised to life 
We were enslaved to lusts and passions. Now we are servants of King Jesus. We were separated from Christ. We were separated from God's people. We were living in hostility with humanity because of the hostility in our heart. But then Paul goes on and we pick up in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. Paul says now there is reconciliation with God. There's now reconciliation with others. There's now union with Christ by faith in Christ and what he's done and what he's done alone. By faith there's now union with Christ and union with other Christ followers. You know, have this reality that in the church, in the body of Christ... Those who have been reconciled to God now have the capacity to be reconciled to one another and display to the world what peace and unity can truly look like within the body of Christ. Paul talks about that. Follow along. Paul, how, how can that be possible? I mean, don't you remember the world we live in, Paul? It's a mess. Paul says, in Christ Everything can be different. Verse 14, he says, For he himself is our peace. Glorious statement. Paul says, Jesus Christ is himself our peace, <clears throat> who has made us both one. And we're going to talk about that this morning. The, the both here is specifically the division between Jew and and Gentile, non-Jew, that historic division that has existed for centuries, Paul says now in Christ that division is gone. But in general, he's also talking broadly of all the lesser human identities that tend to divide us and separate us. He says now he, our peace, has made us both one. And I'm continuing verse 14. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Listen to this. Into verse 15. That he, Christ Jesus, might create in himself one new man, a metaphor for the body of Christ, in place of the two, so making peace. It says, in Christ, the word new means something that was completely unlike what was before. There's something new that didn't exist. It is called the body of Christ, the church. In Christ, there is one new man. All the divisions are laid aside, and we bow our knee to King Jesus, who brings us into a union with one another. Incredible. Verse 16, and might reconcile, there's that word again, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, in Christ, he doesn't just treat the hostility, he kills the hostility in Christ. 
only through him. And I just want you to know, brothers and sisters, this is incredibly good news. <laughs> big truth that we've been operating on, we'll continue this big truth this morning, and I'll give you some big ideas that flow out of this and implications, but the big truth is the same as last week. Jesus' followers are brought near to God by his blood. And we're going to walk through these verses again, and I'm going to give you a, some big ideas I said earlier, but I, I've got to, again, as one of your pastors and one of your elders, just, just share a, a burden. <laughs> Laura asked me to shoot a video tomorrow about my burdens for Ephesians and what, what I want us to grow in and the book of Ephesians. And I'll just tell you, I, I long personally and I long for you that we would grow in awe of our calling in Christ. All that is true right now of you, child of God, by nature of being in Christ. Grow in awe of that. At the same time, I want us to grow in awe of what the Bible declares here to be this glorious community of brothers and sisters in Christ that we are a part of purchased by Christ and placed into this thing called the church. I mean, I'm reading this week and I'm personally deeply convicted. I, I'm just being honest. I'm one of your elders and one of your pastors. But when I come to Ephesians 2, I'm deeply convicted that my own view, therefore my own attitude and my own activity toward God's people this church globally and this local church that we call Tri-Cities, my own view falls woefully short of what the Bible declares us to be in Christ. Oh, I fall so short of my understanding and grasping of all that he has done and made possible by his cross. It's incredible. So this morning, my prayer, Lord, give us a deeper understanding and transform our view and the way we look toward one another and treat one another and are committed to one another and serve one another and are patient with one another. And so let's kind of walk through these verses this morning, and I pray we're transformed by it. So big idea number one that comes out of this, straight from verse 14, is this. In Christ, Jesus' followers have peace with God and peace with one another. Verse 14 again, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Now, we could stop at a lot of points in this and say, Okay, I hear what the Bible declares to be true, that every believer in Christ is one with Christ and one with one another, but, Mike, it just doesn't feel like it. <laughs> we got all these differences and all these conflicts and all this baggage and all this background. I know the positional reality of who we are in Christ will not be fully experienced until glory, but it is no less true today. You have peace with God and you have a peace with one another through the blood of Christ. Paul says, don't forget what you were apart from Christ. Alienation, hostility, brokenness. 
apart from Christ. No, it was not mere indifference. I was just kind of indifferent toward Jesus. No, apart from Jesus, you were an enemy, a rebel. Ephesians 2 says we were children of wrath apart, of, apart from Christ. But now, but now, verse 14, by nature of the gospel, by nature of faith in Christ and him alone, he himself is our peace who has made us both one, verse 14. Verse 17, and he, Jesus, came and proclaimed or preached or declared peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. You'll see this word appear throughout this text and just circle it or mark it or however you write in your Bible. How many times Paul uses this idea of peace? Side note, you want a good word study to get you a concordance or blue letter Bible or whatever you use? Find all the times the word peace appears in your Old Testament and your New Testament and just spend time there. This idea of peace, Paul declares to be found in Christ. What does he mean? What is this idea of peace? We all bring in baggage of what we think that idea of peace means. What does it biblically mean? Well, peace here is not merely the absence of conflict. It's kind of pulled over somewhat from the word shalom, the Hebrew understanding that you can say peace, you can define it this way. It's this multidimensional wholeness. It makes us whole. Let me give you some examples really quick. You can... Jot these down or whatever you'd like. Some of these will be on the screen. How is Jesus our peace? If you're here and you're in Christ, how is he positionally right now your peace? Paul says Jesus himself is our peace. Let me give you some illustrations. Number one, Jesus and him alone transforms chaos into order in our soul. In the middle of the storm with his disciples, Mark 4, verse 39, they're out on the the Sea of Galilee, you know this story, you've read it a thousand times, you've seen it, you've taught it probably, taught your kids this. Jesus says this to the disciples, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, what's the next word? Peace! Be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus and Jesus alone has the capacity to transform chaos into order. Not just in creation, primarily in the broken human heart. I'll give you another illustration. He turns brokenness into wholeness. So many times in the New Testament, people who were broken came to Jesus. And one particular example, Mark 5, 34. Remember the woman who'd had the issue of blood for all those years and she could find no hope and no wholeness and They'd treat her with scorn and disdain, and Jesus welcomes her with such kindness. And she comes, and in her heart she knows, if I could just get close enough to Jesus, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I think in him I will be made whole. She comes, and she touches the hem of his garment. Mark 5, 34, he turns to her and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You were fragmented. You were broken. Now you have wholeness. Not just physically, spiritually. The core of who you are. Jesus brings 
wholeness where there was brokenness. Let me give you another one. He changes hostility into full reconciliation. Romans 5.1. Therefore, the Apostle Paul declares, since we have been justified by faith, we have, what's the next word? Peace. With God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who were enemies. Those who shook a fist in the face of God. All of us. Now there is peace. Reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus replaces the anxiety of soul with rest of soul. John 14, 27. This is an incredible verse. You want a verse to memorize? Slap on your mirror in your car, wherever you... Jesus says to his disciples, peace I leave with you. What kind of peace, Jesus? I mean, kind of the peace we get from the world? What, what kind of peace? He says, no. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus says there is a daily peace that he grants to the soul that has found peace with God. He himself is our peace. Amen? The people of God alone know that peace in Christ. He says, He is our peace. Now, it doesn't stop there. You know, as we read through Ephesians, that peace with Christ then overflows into peace with others. Next big idea is this. The peace that Christ brings is not only vertical with Him, it's also horizontal with one another. Let's look at what that means. Next big idea. In Christ, Jesus' followers are one. He says, verse 14, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Now again, we said it earlier. I, I think I, I kind of feel like I have to stop every few minutes and say this because I understand this is a positional reality that is true of every believer, that every believer in Christ is one with Christ, but we're also in this oneness with each other. And then in your mind, you start thinking of all the reasons that can't be true. Well, I don't like this person. We don't agree. We've got so many differences. All of those things. It doesn't make the reality any less true by your experience. Every believer has been united as one in Christ. Incredible reality. Apart from Christ, we were alienated, hostile, separated. The church at Ephesus had plenty of hostilities, plenty of reasons to separate, plenty of things that they could say, well, I know what you're saying, Paul, but do you know this guy and how different we are? Church at Ephesus, they knew these divisions. They had divisions between Romans and barbarians. Paul makes reference to that. What was a barbarian? Do you say, I think I know some barbarians. I, I think they're from Carter County. I'm not sure. But anyway, I know some. In the Roman world, a barbarian was anyone that didn't speak Latin. Their language was in, inferior, the Romans thought. So anyone that didn't speak that language was considered a barbar, a barbarian of lesser importance so those conflicts existed in the church at Ephesus there were conflicts between rich and poor there were conflicts between masters and slaves there were conflicts between men and women imagine that there were conflicts though primarily the conflict or the potential division threatening the church at Ephesus was this 
age-old conflict between Jew and Gentile. That's why Paul talks about it so much. It's almost an illustration of, you want to see a deep division, Jew and Gentile. You want to see how God and Christ can take that division away. You just look at the church. He gives some examples of why this thing is such a deep division. Now, why was there this age-old conflict between Jew and Gentile? Now, I'm going to take a little aside here, and I want to try to explain this quickly. Because so much of your New Testament deals with this conflict that was brought into the New Testament church between Jews, those descendants of Abraham, and non-Jews called Gentiles. I know we don't use the word Gentile much in our vernacular. You probably don't go around pointing at people and say, hey, I think you're a Gentile. Probably shouldn't do that. But the point is, here, it was a deep, divisive issue. Why? Give you some reasons really quick. Go all the way back to God's redemptive plan. God chose to redeem through a people. All the way back in Genesis 12, God created a people from one man, from Abraham. The Jewish people, Israel came. He set them apart for his glory and his redemptive purposes to say through a people, the people of Israel. You read about that in the Old Testament over and over and over. These people he blessed and he set them apart. He gave them promises. He gave them his presence. He gave them his law and ordinances. And he gave them certain things that they would be set apart and distinctive from everyone around them. It was so that they would not just see the Jews, they would see the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, the God of creation. So God gave them certain things like food laws. Ever gone to a restaurant and you've seen a kosher menu? What does that mean? They were to eat certain things that the world didn't eat. That meant as a good Jew, no catfish. <laughs> that meant as a good Jew, no bacon. Say, well, I'm out. No pork rinds. What's the point? They were given certain things to be distinctive. Because of their relationship with the one true God, there would be a distinction to them that would ultimately point not to them, but to their God. That was why they existed. But God chose to bless Israel always, not just for Israel. You know this from Genesis 12, 2 and 3. The promise given to Abraham was that Abraham, through you, there is going to be a blessing to all nations. Speaking of the Jewish Messiah that would come in Jesus Christ to be a blessing to all nations. Now watch this. Subtly, over time, the blessed people became the arrogant people thinking that the blessings were because of how great they were. And the blessings became a source of pride instead of we are blessed to be a blessing to others. Can I just give you another aside? Every single follower of Jesus Christ is susceptible to the same trap. You are not blessed in Christ just for you. So over time, Israel began to believe that all these blessings are because we're Jews and we can't possibly imagine that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the nations of the earth would experience the same blessings. And you see that through the Old Testament, illustration after illustration of this deep division that existed. Let me give you a quick illustration. The book of Jonah. Remember Jonah? Everybody knows the book of Jonah. If I say anything about the book of Jonah, you think, wasn't there a big fish and swallow this guy Jonah? And you think he was the greatest missionary that ever lived. Can I tell you something? Jonah was the worst missionary in history. You know why? 
Jonah went to a Gentile nation, Nineveh, the Assyrians, preached redemption, preached forgiveness, preached mercy. God brought about a revival to this Gentile people. And scripture says in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah went up on a mountain, folded his arms, got huffy and said, God, I knew you'd do this. As if to say, you mean the Gentiles are worthy of the blessing of God like us Jews? You know, that's what the book of Jonah is about. When you come to the New Testament, Peter, the Apostle Peter, you see all these tensions in the book of Acts and all these tensions in the New Testament. Peter, the leader of the apostles and the leader of the church, was called by God, you remember, in Acts chapter 10, to go to the home of a Gentile, not just a Gentile, a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And God said, Peter, you're going to go there. And Peter said, well, I can't do that. He's a Gentile. What's going on, Lord? You can't be doing this. And God did all these things in Peter's heart. And he finally went and he preached Christ. Christ resurrected. And here's what it says, Acts 10, verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Because you know what? Old Peter thought before that God did show partiality. God had to transform his heart. Acts 10, 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, Jews, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. What? So you feel these tensions. You lived in that day, the first century, and you went to the temple in Jerusalem, the Herod's temple. There was a literal, physical dividing wall that separated Jew and Gentile. Gentiles could only go so far. You go to that wall, you sure can't go on the other side. Only Jews can go there. A literal, physical wall. Josephus, the historian, says on that wall was a sign that said, Gentiles must not pass by this wall at the cost of their life. I think that's a pretty serious division and hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles. You say, Pastor Mike, I think you spent a lot of time on that. Maybe not necessary. You have to understand the background to know why Paul is saying what he's saying in Ephesians 2 and the significance of his words. Let's read them again. But now. Verse 14. He himself is our peace who has made us both primarily Jew-Gentile division into one. And you got Jews and you got Gentiles in the church at Ephesus and they hear that and they read that and they go, what? I mean, centuries of division now unified in Christ. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall. What dividing wall? Paul's probably alluding to that wall in Jerusalem, that physical wall that was there as a symbol of, of the division that existed there. He has torn down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, all those food ordinances, all those things that divided, all those are fulfilled in Christ now, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God. 
in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, Jew and Gentile alike. Full access is open to the Father through Christ. There is a oneness that is unlike any other union on the planet that you share with every other believer by nature of being in Christ. Hallelujah. Now I want you to even take it a little step further and I want you to sense and I want you to know the significance of this oneness and how that plays out in our daily life. See this This anchor truth that Paul is nailing down here in chapter 2 is going to be the truth that he's going to build chapter 4 and 6 on of how we are to treat one another. There is no partiality between master and slave. Why? Because you're one in Christ. There is not this division between male and female. Why? Because you're one in Christ. This concept of oneness is going to be the basis of everything Paul says of how we are to relate to one another in this thing called the church. Pastor Mike, I think I'm getting at it. That's that's a lot. Let me just chase it a little bit further with this question. How significant is this oneness of God's people? Let me give you a couple biblical illustrations, just, just a few of them. You can write these down. Number one, Jesus himself prayed for this oneness. John 17, verses 20 through 21, you can go back and read most of that chapter on your own. It's the night before he's crucified, he's in the garden, he's just wrestling with God in prayer, the Father. We have a record of his prayer. John 17, verse 20, Jesus praying to the Father says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of his disciples then, saying, I'm speaking of all my disciples and generations to come, you, me but also for those who will believe in me through their word, verse 21. Now watch this. Don't miss this. Jesus prays and asks that they, all disciples across all generations, may all be one. This is the night before Jesus is going to die for the sins of the world. And on his mind is this oneness of his bride, of his body, this oneness with God, this oneness with each other. And look how he describes it, verse 21. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Stop right there. We could preach a whole sermon series on that. Here's the one takeaway I want you to hear this morning. How significant is the oneness that you share with every other believer in Christ? It is like the oneness that is shared between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus prayed for it. Therefore, In Christ, you share a oneness that is Trinitarian in nature. Therefore, Paul says in Ephesians 4, and we'll get there in a few weeks, therefore be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Beloved, you don't create unity with other believers. You pursue and maintain that that unity you have that was bought with the blood of Christ, a Trinitarian oneness with one another. 
that the world is to look at and marvel. Jesus prayed for it. Keep going. Jesus died for it. Verse Chapter 2, verse 16, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. One of the outworkings of the death of Christ was union with God and union with one another. Jesus died for it. This union that we have with one another, God the Spirit energizes it. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew and Greek, slave and free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. What does that mean? Thus, in the body of Christ, all our lesser identities fade away. That's why Paul says things like, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is therefore neither Jew nor Greek. There is not slave nor free nor male or female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. Incredible reality. Therefore we have to check ourselves when we say things or we hear things like, well, you know, I love Jesus, but I just don't have much to do with his church. You don't understand what the Bible declares to be a reality about our oneness in Christ. I hear things like, well, we just don't share a whole lot in common. We just don't jive a lot. I don't know if I get along with those people. They're all kind of weird. You don't get what the Bible declares to be our oneness in Christ. Well, somebody said something to me, and I just, I think I took it the wrong way, and I've just kind of been offended, and I've just kind of pulled away because somebody said something that hurt my feelings. Can I say for the love of Christ, come on. You are one. Christ died for it. The Father declared it to be true. The Spirit energizes it. We are to be a beacon that the world looks on and says they are so different. They come from such different backgrounds. They may not even like each other, but they have a unity and a serving of one another and a building up of one another that is not of this world, but the glory of the one who is our cornerstone, the head, Jesus Christ Him. So if we could keep on talking about this forever, time won't allow me. You're saying, thank goodness. In Christ Jesus, followers have peace with God and peace with one another. In Christ Jesus, we are one. Now Paul's going to conclude this chapter, and we don't have time to talk about all this. He's going to read these final verses, make a few final big ideas, and then we're going to respond in song. What is ours in Christ? He gives you three metaphors here. And again, I I don't have time to dig into these. But he gives three metaphors of this oneness. So you can understand the value and the significance of this. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now we're strangers and aliens to the world. But we're not strangers and aliens to God and his people. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. By the way there, it's not that we're built on the greatness of those men. We're built upon the truth by God that was given through those men. The revelation of God, the scriptures. 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together. It's ongoing. Into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Three big ideas I'm going to give you. You can write these down. Team, I'm going to invite you to come on, just begin to play. We're not done. Our time comes to a close. Let me give you these final three things quickly. In Christ, Jesus' followers possess kingdom citizenship. You don't even get the weight of that, but in that day, the day this letter was written, it was a day when Roman citizenship was most prized as a glorious honor and sought for by many. I'm a Roman citizen. Paul says, in Christ, you have something infinitely better. Your greatest identity is in Christ and an identity with Christ's people. You are citizens of the kingdom. Next big idea, in Christ, Jesus' followers belong to God's family. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It's family language. You're part of a household. You're part of a family. In other words, we're to take that and we're to read that and we're to realize my greatest security, my greatest belonging in the planet, in this world, is with Christ and His people. His people. Finally, in Christ, Jesus' followers are being built into a dwelling place of God Himself. Wow. 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, we're all in process. We're all being built up. We're all growing. The, those who are outside the body are being added to the body. This process is going on. This positional oneness will not be fully known until King Jesus returns. But for now, we strive and we serve and we give. And we prioritize to invest in one another so that this thing called the body will continue to grow in health. Ultimately, that Christ Jesus will be glorified. It doesn't have to be awkward. It doesn't have to be weird, but you can just take a second and I give you permission to just kind of look around the room. Just look around the room because even here in this local expression, this thing called Tri-Cities Baptist Church, here we have plenty of things to potentially divide us. We've got things like there's young and there's old, there's city folk and there's country folk and there's upper income and there's lower income and there's country music lovers and those that don't like country music, all those divisions. Even here in this church, we've got people from places like India and Liberia and Mexico and Trinidad. Got places from people from places like West Virginia. God help us all. Los Angeles, California, and people who grew up in the church and people who are new to the church and all these things the world tell us that should divide us. Listen, beloved, I want to nail this stake like the Apostle Paul has done. In Christ Jesus, He is our peace, and He has made us one. 
one day the prince of peace is going to return and he's going to establish universal peace and all things are going to submit to him but until that day the church this church is to be a little foretaste for the world to see of what it looks like to bow the knee to King Jesus no peace within that only he can bring and a peace with one another that the world marvels at may it be so Lord Jesus help us we praise you we who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ